Les soldats, casqués, jambes ouvertes, foule, muscles retenus, les nouveaux-nés emmaillotés dans les châles écarlates, violets. Les bébés roulent hors des bras des femmes, accroupis sur les tôles mitraillées des GMC. Le chauffeur repousse avec son poing libre une chèvre projetée dans la cabine. Au col, Fercousse, une section du Rima traverse la piste. Les soldats sautent hors des camions. Ceux du Rima se couchent sur la caillasse, la tête appuyée contre les pneus criblés de silex, d'épines, dénudes le haut de leur corps ombragé par le garde-boue. Les femmes bercent les bébés contre leurs seins. Le mouvement de bercer remue, renforcé par la sueur de l'incendie, les parfums dont leurs haillons, leurs poils, leurs chairs sont imprégnés. Huile, girofle, aîné, beurre, indigo, Souffre d'antimoine. Au bas du fercousse, sous les prons chargés de cèdres calcinés, orge, blé, rucher, tombe, buvette, école, gadou, figuier, mechta, muret tapissé d'écoulements de cervelle, verger rubescent, palmier, dilaté par le feu, éclate. Fleurs, pollen, épis, brins, papier, étoffes maculées de lait, de merde, de sang, écorce, plumes soulevées, ondules, rejetées de brasier à brasier par le vent qui arrache le feu de terre. Les soldats, assoupis, se redressent, hument les pans de la bâche, appuient leurs joues marquées de pleurs séchées contre les ridelles surchauffées, frottent leur sexe aux pneus empoussiérés. Creusant leurs joues, salivent sur le bois peint. Ceux des camions, descendus dans un guet sec, coupent des lauriers roses. Le lait des tiges se mêle sur les lames de leurs couteaux au sang des adolescents éventrés par eux, contre la paroi centrale de la carrière d'Onyx. Les soldats taillent, arrachent les plants, les déracinent avec leurs souliers cloutés. D'autres shootent, déhanchés, excréments de chameau, Grenade, charonne d'aigle. Ceux du Rima escaladent les marchepieds des camions, se jettent sur les femmes, toutes armées. Leur sexe surtendu éprône les lambeaux violets que les femmes resserrent au creux de leurs cuisses. Le soldat, sa poitrine écrasant le bébé accolé au sein, écarte les cheveux que la femme a répandus sur ses yeux, caresse le front de la femme avec ses doigts poudrés de poussière d'onyx. L'orgasme fait jaillir de sa bouche un jet de salive qui mouille le crâne beurré du bébé. Le sexe ressorti repose en s'amollissant sous les châles dont il prend la teinture. Le vent ébranle les camions, le sable fouette les essieux, les tôles. We were talking with Cecile a few days ago, you know, about we ended up, well, she's very interested in paranoia here and, uh, and then we also brought forward the whole issue uh, about conspiracy theories, which we also spoke with Reza Negarestani about it. I mean, is 
the perfect field in order to see conspiracy theories. I mean, there's the, and don't you think that it actually is a lack of, it comes among many other things uh, also because there is a lack of philosophical, a sounding philosophical response to what's going on, the inability for philosophy to, you know, uh, think itself at this historical moment, you know, it, 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 it generates this uh, field where I mean, conspiracy theories are just the, the normal, you know. Um, so yeah. don't you think yeah. that there is some... Yeah, well, especially in this environment of post-truth politics, as they call it, right, which, which, which you know, we've been living in for some time, you know, and it's, uh, I mean, even before Trump changed the nature of that it was already uh conspiracy theories have been rife since you know 9-11 and the internet and so on you know but uh uh yeah it seems like um the that's uh that's only just amplifying as as, as we go on as history carries on yeah Wait, i'm laughing because i i read this morning trump basically being uh speaking for Boris Johnson and saying, look, Boris Johnson, you know, he just wanted to ride it out. But then, you know, the numbers became, <laughs> you know, mega galactic or something like this, which is he's so funny. He just, it's, it's not, I mean, it's not funny, but he's funny at the same time. It's, yes. it's, it's hilarious. Post-truth thing, mainstream in a, in a way that nobody would have been able to predict. Yeah. Yeah, but then at the same time, I mean, you know, his it, the you know Trump and and Bolsonaro as well have come up, up against kind of the hard reality in some ways, right? Because they, you know, it's uh, it's it, it, and particularly Bolsonaro, like you know, just his his attempt to pass this off as as a as a as a fake was just met with utter, you know, people just acted against him, you know, the the. People started implementing measures without his power, you know, because well, nobody's <laughs> believed that. Shit. You know, we're, all, we're all scared for our lives. We're not going to believe this shit about. I guess I, I, I would like to bring this uh, back to noise because I guess we all develop uh, an interest in noise in the you know in the last few decades <laughs> where. I guess we were interested in its potential, or the potential of noise to to basically question the normative, question expectations, question, you know, it's, it's, it's challenge to cognitive abilities, to experience, you know, all these kind of issues that kind of uh, have to make you reconsider the position that you are in. But that was in a time where there was a tiny bit more stability than there is today, you know, to say the least. We want know. back to information now. <laughs> We're done with noise. And and now, you know, the whole thing is just collapsing in front of our eyes, you know, and is such a complex type of situation. The, how how would you address this? You know, your interest in noise with these changes in society that have been going on, you know, certainly the last decade. Cecil, you wanna? 
Yeah, I, I, since we were talking about paranoia and uh, after I spoke with Martin, I had a revelatory conversation where all the things I feared about somebody else's paranoia turned out much to be much worse than I had anticipated. Um, so the conversation went something like this, uh, you know, it's a strange coincidence between, um, you know, some an economic reality that was about to collapse and then the virus came and then essentially the conclusion of it was the, the this whole pandemic thing and the inadequate reaction of Western governments was wanted. And uh, that's someone relatively close to me who's actually just messaging me now, okay, um, who said this and I, I kind of thought, okay, can, I, can you hear yourself? I mean, who do you think wants this epitome and and who would have the power to make Western governments react in in such an incompetent way um, and and the crux of it after some argument and raising voices was it was the World Health Health Organization and <laughs> Bill um, <coughs> the Bill Gates Foundation and it was the actual Western governments themselves who are using this as a um, as a pretext to uh, introduce a new world order, uh, make reforms, uh, get rid of cash uh, so that you can control what people have and take it away from them. Um, I, mean, I don't want to be too unfair in the way that I'm summarizing this, but that's kind of the, the gist of it. So uh, when I said, do you, do you think Merkel, for instance, is, uh, is someone who's actually you know, instrumentalizing this epidemic and, and the response to it for something like this. Yeah, yes, no, yes, no, maybe, no, but it's a, it's a high finance. And so you kind of slide between things that probably can be said with some certainty to people who already think like you, to um, a kind of topsy-turvy of self-contradictory statements, um, but overall a certainty that there is something you don't understand. So the conclusion of the of the conversation was, oh, well, I should have probably not burdened you with this because you're young and you don't have experience and, um, you know, it's a bit too much for you. <laughs> I was like thinking, it's too much for me, but in a different way from what you're thinking. So the, thinking back to what Martin said, why noise is so so relevant, I think, is actually more relevant than it was before, is because the data that we have for this to to assess the severity of the of the epidemic is very volatile i mean do you attribute the death one of the conspiracy uh, points is that the number of deaths due to covid is totally blown up because the people who died most of them were very old and would have died anyway of something else um, to be to be completely honest, we don't know how many people have the coronavirus. So the, the statistics of cases, unless you have a serious epidemiological study where you take samples and so forth in all countries, it's very wild. It's the yes. wild west of data. Then you it's, have it's, this. It's, you know, as with most conspiracies and paranoias, there's a there's elements of truth mixed up with wild speculation here. And like the you know, it's certainly the case that the reporting on deaths is different in different countries and yeah. that, that's because you know so it's not just pure data we've got data being represented in some way of course you know and so um and of course there's a certain amount of also uh 
you know, data massaging or, inf you know, massaging of the information in order to make the governments of those areas look, look better. Like in, in the UK, they, they, they change the definition of, of various things to make the death, death toll look less and so on. But, uh, but um, you know, the, even considering those differences, you still get a sense of that, you know, there's the, I mean, the, the, the death tolls are so high that really the, the impacts on those changes are, are not, not a, a great deal. Uh, yeah, there is. Sorry. Go on. Uh, no, that uh, just uh, for giving an example, yesterday when UK declared the number of uh, deaths in the last 24 hours, they declare only deaths uh, in hospitals, not in their houses. Mm. Uh, so you see this uh, little drop in the number of deaths from the day before, but it's just yeah. they did that, this little modeling. Well, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, with regard to noise, um, so maybe um, this is a. I mean, that what what we were just talking about here was like uh, noise in the sense of misinformation and disinformation, right? Um, which uh, I I meant it in a slightly different way, and I I didn't manage to finish the point. Right. Um, is that if you have such a wide margin in how you use the data that you fact that you have and how you interpret it and, and what you you know what importance you allocated the margin of uncertainty how do you handle that if that is immediately invested with affect in a major way and then you can either have I think this uh, paranoia is to a certain extent um, like a catastrophic reaction. It's a what I think it was someone used the expression a flight into meaning for in the context of schizophrenia. I don't know if that's if that in, in the original context that was even a good way to, to look at schizophrenia or not. And I've been told it, it probably wasn't. But I think still the concept of flight into meaning is quite interesting. If you have this much pressure and intensity in terms of affect and people's uncertainty about the future and you have a mar huge margin of interpretation, ambiguity in how, how to handle the data, I think you, you know, the question of noise then becomes a question of how you inhabit this uncertainty. What do you do with it? And how do right. you prevent this kind of catastrophic reaction that either becomes, you know, mobilizes this kind of paranoia or racism or, you know, I guess a lot of the, a lot of the domestic abuse that we're hearing about is to do also with people not being able to handle the uncertainty of what's going, what's on the other side of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Yes. Plus the disinformation. Obviously, that's that's not that's not separate from it. It's it's part of this field of affective field of tension within which data plays a role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to continue from that, Inigo, or? Yeah, well, okay, I mean, I think, um, well, what could be useful here is, I mean, at the beginning of my uh, long-delayed book, um, I separate noise into a number of different senses um, and um, kind of following from um, 
from Carnap's discussion of probability. So Carnap dis discusses the two explicanda of probability. So uh, and he's saying that the dispute over those different uh, over what probability is, whether it's subjective or objective, is really a dispute over two different explicanda, two different meanings of the term, right? And and uh, or senses, right? And then I think so. For me, I I I find there's at least seven senses of noise that we can kind of think about um, and I think they're all quite strong you know you can relate all of those senses to the situation we're undergoing now I mean probably okay so the first sense is noise in the sonic sense um, I think probably that's the that's the least important to be thinking about at the moment in the, in relation to the virus right but certainly kind of there's been a change in change in the soundscape as a result of the lockdown but i mean this is kind of trivial compared to the rest of the things here so then secondly there's a kind of noise in the engineering sense right where which is in cybernetics and information theory so something like interference with a goal and i mean clearly uh well, we could expand on this. Uh, this, I, you know, certainly, kind of, there's been a massive interference with, m you know, many goals in in this uh, in this uh, cat catastrophe that's unfolding. Then there's a then there's a kind of normative sense, um, which uh, relates to kind of value judgment, so to treat something as noise. So, for example, to silence something, to say to 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 decide something is irrelevant um, and you know perhaps we could talk here about uh, you know the way in which uh, various aspects of the population has been have been treated as expendable for example this is part yes, of the absolutely. You know, um, uh, then there's a fourth sense is a epistemic sense so relating to Randomness, unpredictability, and so on, and clearly, obviously, this—you uh, know—the the, the virus has been an unpredictable uh, uh, shock. Um, and then there's a fifth sense related to um, negation, protest, malfunction—you uh, know—the negative in some ways, right? Uh, and you know, obviously, that's that's prevalent here with it, with uh, with with the breakdown in various you know resource allocations and the the, the various protests that have sprung up, although housed at you know locked in houses. Um, then there's a sixth sense is related to positive feedback and contagion which I mean I don't have to say obviously how that relates to it uh, and then the last one would be about inferential error uh, so a kind of noise that happens in terms of our decision making with regard to theories and uh, I think uh, also you know that's kind of clear how that relates to the situation we've already talked about it a little bit how uh, how uh, we this catastrophe demands uh, um, you know 
being thought and the theoretical frameworks for it are, are, are suddenly being generated and you know like Cecile says out of this affective kind of panic um, but uh, then you know and that suddenly we can think about uh, noise at that kind of logical level or theoretical level what I find really fascinating is, uh, yeah, like there is, um, I think, Cecile, uh, some of your work really complements uh, and goes beyond uh, or expands on, as you were saying, uh, the affective, but also, you know, I guess I found very interesting as we talk about the psychological, this other form of noise that has to do when our own self-conception collapses, which is, um, which I don't know, I mean, it kind of maybe takes on the normative, uh, the third aspect of what uh, Inigo is talking, uh, and the fifth one, you know, with the form of negation, negation of one's own perception, but I think it will be interesting to hear also your perspective how on other elements that you understand noise, which I think they fit very much with the situation that we're in. Well, I, I guess if I take a step back from this situation, uh, the thing that underlies my interest for noise uh, was actually uh, work I did years ago on my uh, master's dissertation on um, Bachelard, uh, Gaston Bachelard. And there was the, um, this, I, I, had, I, it rem I remained with an image of thought more than anything else of what happens when you stand at the edge of what your science enables you to know which is where you stand when you do research. And that is, I think, a big difference between philosophers of science most of the time. I don't think necessarily for Gaston Bachelard because he was an extraordinary kind of exception to this. But a lot of the time, philosophy of science, I think, is based on the established knowledge of science. Whereas the scientists themselves, if they are, you know, if they are publishing really new material, they are uh, either standing on the edge of what it is possible to predict on the basis of what they already know, or they are already standing outside, looking in, if you like. They're standing on the basis of a hypothesis that they can't justify yet, looking in onto this edifice of, of knowledge that has been historically created through data, through conventions, through you know, agreement and selective publication mechanisms that are sometimes based on evidence, sometimes based on who you know. Um, so there's, there is this architecture of knowledge that exists, that is an organic architecture inhabited by real human beings that are not always rational, um, with data that is housed in it, that has, you know, real purchase beyond our intuitive engagement and phenomenological engagement with the world. And I'm thinking about noise as that which, on the basis of which you stand outside of this edifice of what is known and you look in. And on the basis of which a new paradigm might be able to recast what has been known so far, discarding some elements, keeping others, but rearranging them in a completely different way. Th that was really the fundamental that remains for me the fundamental 
motivation in thinking about noise, a kind of ungrounding that is not irrational, but that is the, the natural place from where reason starts. It's at the base of the cognitive abilities, yeah? It's like the, the this in, interconnection of the... Yeah, it's in the process of cognition. And more than that, because it's not just psychological. If you think in terms of maths, for instance, um, a new field in maths, if you can stand outside of what is already established, it's not on the basis of your psychological cognitive abilities only, but also on the basis of the virtualities of what your knowledge has made possible to think, but you're not thinking it yet. And the reverse of this is that when you're in that kind of no man's land, from where you look in onto established knowledge and you start to draw new hypotheses, it's very hard for people in the kind of normal setting of science to, to take that in. And I'm not sure if it was Maxwell, it's actually, I should look it up because it's one of my favorite quotes, but uh, I think it was Maxwell who said, you have to wait for a generation to die for new facts to be accepted, or for new facts of science or new theses of science to be accepted. So I guess it's my kind of personal quest. I don't say that's the dimension of all the possible ways of looking at noise, but that is the um, the thing that it's, I'm still fascinated with. How that relates to the situation now, I think, is a kind of um, ethics. What is the adequate way of dealing with our uncertainty? So we have this data, we know that it's it's not as much as we think it is. We have death tolls, but you know we don't know exactly what to attribute it to. How do you inhabit the uncertainty of how to interpret the data that we have? Are you someone who is, um, you know, do you go into a flight into meaning where you, you know, either call it the, the Chinese virus and then there's racism, or you have conspiracy theories, which before you count to three, you end up in stuff that is not not a period in history I would want Germany or anyone like this to go back to. Um, and if you are creative as a scientist, as an artist, as a writer, I think you have, it's not just a margin of uncertainties, on the basis of uncertainty what do you do with these, um, with the knowledge that we have, I guess, these fragments that don't sit there solidly for the rest of all eternity, but that are something that we juggle with. How do you juggle your data on the basis of uncertainty? Something like this, a kind of ethics. How do you avoid a catastrophic reaction, a flight into meaning? And I, having said this now, I feel completely powerless because when I, I feel that we can have these kinds of conversations, we come from different angles, we find places where we intersect, but if I try to speak with someone who comes with hardcore conspiracy theories, even though it's someone very close to me that I should have access emotionally to, I am absolutely powerless. There's nothing yeah. I can do to even make the slightest dent into the conviction that funnels and fuels these kinds of thoughts. May I say something? Because I am interested in, in this idea that obviously we cannot deny uh, the uncertainty that we are facing and how we try to manage this uncertainty, these different processes uh, might entail speculation uh, in, in the literal sense and as well in terms of financial speculation, how you are going to manage your own life with this. But I would like to know what do you think 
about this, well, the, the outspread of COVID-19, if you consider this as a highly unpredictable event in terms of Taleb's lax one, as something that is the result of uh, different interactions, uh, processes, let's say globalization and so, or as uh, this uh, quite controversial uh, comment that, for example, Steve Bannon said last week that obviously, as Taleb himself highlighted, uh, this was something likely to occur uh, after a process of super high mobility, globalization, etc., global pandemic was something like a something to be expected. So where is the noise in this outbreak as such? Um, I, I know I've monopolized a lot of time, so I'll say no. a small thing if I can, uh, and yeah, then I'll leave. Of course. Uh, and, oh, feel free. Right. Um, I think depending on your perspective, both are true. If you have a very short-term perspective, this was a very unusual thing to happen. If you look in the, le in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you don't see a precedent for it. If you look a little bit longer, then yes, it's predictable because throughout history, um, you know, pandemics happen. And even in the Middle Ages, there was sufficient globalization for this to reach far into Asia from Europe. I, I think it came from Central Asia, the bubonic pest, but I, I'm not, not entirely sure. But in any case, it, commerce and trade was such that this had already absolutely gigantic proportions then. Um, so I think it's the same with the way that we are preparing for adjusting to climate turbulence and climate change. The idea that on the basis of what we're, we're trying to, pre to prepare for it, on the basis of what has happened in the recent past, but in the geological history of Earth, there, has, there have been many, many mass extinctions, many uh, climate turbulences and many periods of drastic climate change. So yes, it's kind of, it's very new, but at the same time, it's something that you, you can model, you can to a certain extent say this is happening, it might happen in a non-linear way, and if it happens in a in a very rapid way, we have to, you know, we have to use all of the resources of human intelligence to adapt to it, ideally collectively and globally. Mm, yeah, I, I would stay quiet now for a bit. Later. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think... Um, uh, so yeah, as you know, I've been writing, uh, you know, working a lot on this issue of the black swan recently, and uh, and um, and thinking about the virus in relation to this. Firstly, I'd say, okay, that um, yes, the 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 virus, the pandemic was was is not a black swan in the sense that it's uh, it was it was part of expectations. You know, it was it, it has been modelled, it has been predicted. We've been we've known about it for some time in epidemiological studies. You know, supposedly, apparently, uh, I saw a thing that the Pentagon had done a, a, a very kind of um, uh, full ana analysis of the possibility of a pandemic of the, exactly this kind with exactly the kind of uh, 
problems that were, would ensue from it. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, I think the, the issue is not, uh, you know, um, to blame it on globalization or interconnectedness, right? But to, to, to you know, because like, like Cecile said, we, you know, there's been a certain amount of interconnectedness, for, you know, way back in history right it, and it's not uh, it's it, it that's not the issue the issue was or, or is that uh, that the, the way in which uh, you know the capitalist infrastructure has effectively priced people out of existence right that they they that this last 30 years of the destruction of the health services and uh, the creation of you know millions of uninsured people who are who are you know completely reliant on on the, on, on kind of volunteer help now right uh, you know, which the which states states are you know modern states are wealthy enough to provide for those people and they haven't done Right? They have. They. They. They knew. They. They could have known. They certainly did know in some some respects that something of this kind was likely. But they did nothing to to, to stop it. They did. They didn't care. They just didn't care. Uh, so I, I think you know that's it's uh, it's not a black swan in that sense at all. It's it's an effect of uncaring capital, uh, uh, and you know. Secondly, then I'd say you know I, I, I completely agree with the, with, the, with with Cecile's point here about um, one the, the kind of doxastic conservativeness of the established view in science also in politics and so on you know with regard to and we see this certainly with regard to kind of uh, you know the the coming problems of climate change that you know climate change already occur you know the effects already happening for example with the with the forest fires and with, with massive floods and droughts and so on and you know exactly the same thing the populations that are, are affected by it have just been priced out of existence because because capital just doesn't care. The capital will continue making a profit, and it doesn't matter if those expendable populations are are, are lost, right? Then uh, you know. So the 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 and this this conservativeness of the established view is something like like you said also about a denial of uncertainty, right? And this denial of uncertainty. I mean, okay. We've we've uh, we've all uh, t talked quite a lot uh, before in, in previous times about uh, this uh, new paradigm in in, uh, in in cognitive science called predictive processing philosophy, right? Which is all about the you know, the view of cognition as an uncertainty-reducing mechanism, right? The easiest way to reduce uncertainty is just to deny it, and, and, and you know, <laughs> And and really, this is this is connected to this kind of doxastic conservativeness, right? It's you know, if, if, if think of a think of how uh, a conservative person kind of comes across new music, and they just say, oh, this is not this is noise, it's not music. You know, that's the easiest way to reduce their uncertainty in the face of this new information. Oh, it's just noise, it's not relevant. But it's interesting how this denial of uncertainty grounds the path for narratives such as conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, again, it's just an, a, a very easy knee-jerk reaction of getting rid of the uncertainty. You know, in some ways it's weird because, you know, paranoia and conspiracy theories are somehow also producing uncertainty, right? You know, but, and feeding off uncertainty. But they are also kind of, uh, you know, they're also a mechanism of 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 coping with that, that uncertainty as well, right? Because they 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 reject the 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 narrative, the hard narrative which they have to face, which is you know this is this is not some kind of external power influencing the world, you know, in some kind of uh, you know concerted, organized, planned way, but you know an unplanned kind of effect of people's interactions. Yeah, I guess this really fits with uh, one of the Leon Kerstinger's uh, ways in which he, he explains how people with cognitive dissonance try to overcome it, which is, as you said, you know, to basically get rid of that problematic belief that will contradict its own opinions. Uh, it's interesting because also in the um, text that you send us, uh, you bring Edia Aradze, I don't know how you pronounce it, but uh, but it's almost the opposite in the way that he takes contingency to be the normal, to, you know, to kind of uh, say, no, that's what we live. But you also bring, you, you criticize him very, very thoroughly for this and you also mention the political consequences, the problems of that political consequences that this could De la nécessité d'être productif, de la nécessité d'être pro, de la nécessité d'être actif, de la nécessité d'être productif, de la nécessité d'être produisant, du déni, du dédain pour les rangs, du déni, du dédain pour celui qui erre, de la nécessité de faire, de la nécessité d'être productif, de la nécessité d'être produisant, de la nécessité d'être actif, de la nécessité de faire. Il y a des gens qui gèrent, du déni, du dédain pour les rangs, de la nécessité d'être produisant, de la nécessité d'être productif, de la nécessité d'être produisant, de la nécessité de faire. Well, so so uh, Ayash, I, I, that's how I pronounce it. I don't know if, what the actual pronunciation is. Ayash is uh, he's he's written this book, uh, Blank Swan, uh, in response to Taleb's Black Swan, and his argument is that the that Taleb has mistaken 
the black swan as a you know his his analysis is it stays at the epistemological level when it should be ontological it should be it should recognize the ontological nature of radical contingency imminent contingency of the market um and uh i mean it's just a i mean i think you know effectively you know he well he's following mayasu's absolute absolutization of contingency I think also he effectively absolutizes the commodity fetishism of the derivatives market. Um, uh, you know, his, uh, I mean, it's, it's completely kind of bonkers uh, what he's arguing in some way. You know, it, it's just, uh, it, it's, uh, and again, it's something like uh, uh, a kind of self-justification for his position as a, as a trader, um, which is, uh, you know, I mean, so I think actually Taleb is much closer to the truth in thinking, you know, epistemology first. Uh, and really, like, the, you know, if, okay, there's for sure, there's this kind of radical emergent novelty. And the virus is a radically emergent kind of new thing, right? But what's important about that is our knowledge with respect to it. You know, how are we going to act and so on? Right. Yeah, but yeah, but that's a highly problematic point because we have uh, always this dichotomy. We face this dichotomy, which we could uh, go back and talk in terms of Carnap's probability sub one and Carnap's mm. probability sub two, in which you think, okay, this highly uncertain reservoir of events that we have now to do different stuff, to speculate in finance, to speculate about different forms of academia, to be creative whatsoever. This huge um, uh, increase in the production of novelty, where does it come from? From our, our um, already mediated reservoir of epistemic structurized uh, knowledge or from this rift in time in which from now on we have to construct new versions of the world new frames of reference so i think there is a legitimate ontological question there certainly yes but i think it can't be understood you know without thinking the epistemic situation. I agree, I agree, 100%. <laughs> well, there, there is a very beautiful text by Conguilhelm about the singular. Uh, what is singular in, in the sense that it stands alone and for which there is no category and there can't be. And I think that could possibly be one useful concept to think about how radical novelty is because I would, I would side more with um, Inigo on this that I, I think most things that are new in time within a certain time sequence depending on how long you stretch the time sequence you will have a certain repetition of that event in all likelihood maybe the singularity is that it never repeats exactly the same way but there are aspects of it that you can rationalize unless something really singular happens that has never happened before and that changes absolutely everything I suppose I don't know that, yeah, is, that would be a way of, of looking at the on the question of ontological are you talking about ontological variance in the sense that for example the trader that i think i agree with ayashi that there wouldn't be ayaki ayashi i don't know <laughs> there, would, there would be no trading 
if you knew the value of things, there would simply be prices. So yes. this kind of molecular uncertainty around prices, it's not a radical uncertainty. You're not pricing something like way out in comparison to others, but you have a kind of um, fourmillement of, of values around um, that create an average. Right. I mean, this and is... What, what this would be is, a valuable uh, novelty? Something that you say, you know, you, you have no category for framing, valuing, conceptualizing, adapting to, and you don't know. I think it's almost a theological concept. Right. I mean, I guess, well, if we go back to Taleb's original notion, the black swan, I mean, he chose it precisely because, you know, it's the example comes from Europeans who thought all swans were white. And then when they went to Australia as colonialists, they discovered, oh, they're, you know, we're wrong. Our category is wrong. And so it's certainly about the, the kind of assumed kind of uh, understanding of nature, the categories that we impose on it, right? Um, but, uh, and then, you know, and this is why I think, you know, Ayash is quite reactionary by by kind of making this kind of uh, blank swan kind of idea, right? Um, and, you know, but, but what's right about what, what Ayash is arguing is this, is I think this pricing over probability framework that he suggests, in which uh, Schaefer and Voke uh, kind of put in game theoretic terms, um, and that's uh, I th that's kind of based on this idea that okay, so price it's because pricing is this active kind of process of betting on the world effectively, right? Uh, and that doesn't require the prior identification specification of a probability distribution right so and there are many things in the world there are many effects that there are many processes where a prior probability distribution cannot be specified and where those where, where those processes are continually changing their probability specifications so and it's particularly the case where where our where we are in an interactive relationship with those random processes ourselves right so and you know biological uh, phenomena are, this is how longo talks about it right longo talks about how um the the you know the biological evolution as a kind of cascade of symmetry breaking transitions Right, so that so you can't draw the phase space for a biological, you know, an ecological situation, because unlike inert matter, which is going to follow a kind of, you know, specifiable in advance probability distribution, you don't get that. You get a continual changing of what are the pertinent observables and parameters, and so on. And similarly, in you know, in so in biological and economic phenomena, what you have is this kind of interactive process which is changing probabilities as you go along. Ch changing, you know, the whole probability distributions. I so, think, yeah, go on. Um, yeah, I mean, this uh, fetishization of contingency or like ontologization of contingency that Arashi or Aras is doing, I mean, it seems to me like an overblown form of mystification in the sense that, like, I mean, the way that Marx explains mystification, 
uh, is how um, people, uh, the capitalists understand profit without ne negating its connection to value. And this is a problematic kind of thing because there's been a whole tradition within Marxism uh, which has been questioning the relationship between value and, and profit. Um, so basically, the question is how uh, value, yeah, this relationship is, um, is cannot be empirically proved. And this is what many analytics Marxists had the problem of not being able to identify how it's the relationship of profit to value because it could not be empirically proved. But then that's, that is, uh, that's, uh, misses the abstraction, the process of abstraction within capitalism. And this abstraction is, made, is not a form of abstraction that can be empirically perceived because it's kind of occluding uh, the social relations that are underneath in the production of value. So with this, I want to say, or I want to, uh, it seems to me obvious that within the mode of production that we are in, we are not conscious of what we are doing, but we get the repercussions and then we try to find answers for some of the repercussions of what we are doing. And certainly the, absolutization of contingency within the uh, market seems to me like to push it into the most kind of extreme version in which uh, is like almost saying or implying the impossibility that is absolutely impossible to try to trade uh, cognitively able to understand what's going on. It's like almost like cutting your your tools to, to understand, you know. Um. Yes. Um, I mean, well, there's a number of like heterodox economists who are arguing for price, the price process over the over value. So that so that so people like uh, Nitzan and Bichler, uh, Olion, um, uh and Ayash and so on, and they're, they're you know, so they're, they're kind of arguing that the that the idea of value is a kind of substantialist, you know, substance ontology conception, um, and that this is why they put pricing as ha having primacy over that and value as being derivative to it. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, so, uh, I'm still trying to think through this myself, right? But as far as I understand it, uh, I, I would agree with this primacy of the price process. But for me, I would take price firstly as a political, you know, price expresses capital power. It's, it's, it's political. And, you know, the problem with Ayash is he has no politics. Uh, then, then the, the so, uh, but I don't think that negates the idea of value. For me, we can have a process theoretical understanding of value. And I think, for example, uh, Anwar Sheikh has a, has a great uh, kind of uh, understanding of uh, value in terms of turbulent regulation of capital. Um, that would be a 
what about um, I mean not not about I'm not, not thinking in terms of um, stock market pricing now but the the money and value if you look at the situation now where the only people who are allowed to use public transport are people whose work is considered to be essential um, and people stepping outside of their houses applauding and and you know beating pans to recognize the value of the work of carers and uh, health workers uh, does that somehow does that somehow play into this conversation of, of uh, value and pricing yes I, well yeah I think so I mean I think uh, I think um, we're not pricing at the stock exchange obviously I'm talking about how, how we how we attribute how we negotiate value and um, basically people's salaries and livelihoods and purchase power in terms of their participation in in, in the economy yes exactly I mean I think pricing is effectively valuing you know uh, it's a form of valuing that is uh, that that is uh, that is uh, mediated by the by money which is uh, which is the the, the the medium of that that uh, that we do pricing in um, but uh, you know the the this crisis this catastrophe you know brings in various shocks to that form of, of valuing of, of, of pricing right um, and you know we may see those drastically changed as, 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 as things happen right? yeah that's super interesting because we can see now uh, how crazy it is the low wages of people working in grocery shops or primary teachers like my partner working uh, in schools that they need to attend kids of uh, key workers let's say or nurses or care workers care providers of any sort under precarious contracts this needs to be rethinking uh, the the whole economy surrounding care uh, please go ahead there's one thing i um i was thinking about a lot recently which is the value we, we attribute to and, the, and how we price uh, the value of work in general. And I've yeah. thought for a long time that the concept of work is um, historically very contingent. It's very recent that it's a desirable thing to work. I mean, it, it used to be a, for in, even impoverished aristocrats derived their value not from the work they were doing, but from the titles they, they perhaps still owned, even if they were landless and... and free of capital, people who have amassed huge fortunes still feel that they need to buy art collections or contribute to foundations in order to transform their capital into something that is of that shows that they as people are of value. Um, so I was thinking whether what will happen as a result of this, I, nobody knows what will happen, but one of the rethinks for me that would be necessary, especially if we talk, for instance, about something like universal income, which has, you know, pro, pros and cons, um, would be to would be to reassess the historical moment in which we are, uh, which has made work a moral value and a moral duty. You have you are worth only as much as you contribute to society uh, and mostly in terms of how much you earn although this has its limits because if you have a lot of money you're still nobody if you're not someone who's 
also showing that they have cultural credentials so you have a foundation or you do charitable work or something like this and in that context i was thinking that if half of humanity has worked without financial compensation until now and in developing countries women are increasingly paid for work that they do outside of domestic labor but domestic labor and reproductive labor has been basically rewarded only by images like the madonna or i don't know some kind of symbolic affectivity of of motherhood mother's the best you know and that's a pittance to pay half of humanity for pretty hard domestic labor basically but if you can motivate so many human beings be it in the, in the historical case i wouldn't like to repeat it uh, through dependency fear whatever coercion mechanisms but also through values that are positively you know interiorized i am a good mother i am a good housekeeper i am a good wife i am like the madonna i'm like the wife of the prophet and i don't know things like that what if we used something like that um positively in the sense that you could think of a humanity that does not no longer derive its value through work because we will have for many professions machines and automated processes that can do that um, I read the other day that uh, construction workers have the highest suicide rates of all professions. I mean, I'm looking forward to the day where those people can stay home and make themselves valuable to humanity and to their com communities, not having to go onto building sites. We'll probably have many ways of constructing things where you don't even need someone to, to be under that kind of physical stress. Namatina, no Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. Una mattina mi son svegliato e trovato l'invasore. O partigiano, portami via. Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. Partigiano, portami via. Che mi sento di morir e se muoio da partigiano bella ciao bella ciao bella ciao 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 e se muoio da partigiano tu me devi seppellir e seppellire la su montagna Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao Sai pelire nessun montagna Sotto l'ombra di un bel fiore I genti che passeranno oh, Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao I genti che passeranno Mi diranno che bel fiore Questo è il fiore del partigiano. Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. Questo è il fiore del partigiano morto per la libertà. Yeah, I mean, the, I don't know if you read the stories about the nuclear plant that they are constructing in Bridgewater, but the number of... Uh, uh, suicides is, is, is nuts because of the shifts you have like 
uh, working process studies about that and it's gonna take like near 20 years to to finish it's like it's incredible but you you did a a, a very interesting point that I, i would like to emphasize how if we have a society that has a high level of production so we can have a universal basic income you need to automate certain jobs that they are very productive nonetheless care providers is highly unlikely that they are going to be automated so maternity labor care i don't know there are a lot of key elements of as we understand work that they won't be automa- automated and if price uh, serves. I, guess I, I guess I was thinking about how how we value what people do when it's not remunerated so at the moment we have this correla- correlation between yeah. work and remuneration and that is the definition of your value as a person pretty, pretty much yeah um, if you if you could have things I mean if you think how many academics how many Uh, medical professionals are in in jobs that are very low paid when clearly they had the academic performance that could have enabled them to be traders or bankers or, or you know have completely different sets of salaries but their remuneration to a certain extent is also the um, the investment in in what it means to be a doctor I mean there's a huge moral investment in that and people are extremely highly motivated not on the basis of money to do those jobs Yeah. That's why I'm thinking that if, if one of the most toxic elements in assessing the future of the economy, I think, is an outdated concept of work that is still based on industrialization and, you know, the competition between literally horsepower, the work that either a horse or a machine or a human being can do. So I'm, I'm kind of... Yeah, and, and I know you are right, and you, we can see daily these days a paradigmatic shift in the moral value of let's say being in a till in a grocery shop suddenly these workers have a higher moral value but i would be interested in perceiving a massive shift in economy in actual economy in let's say nine months with new job offers with a much higher rate of payment for let's say being a care provider Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but in what if something like a universal basic income? I mean, I'm not theorizing how the economy could be because I'm I'm in a different galaxy. I'm so far away from having the competence to assess what it takes to run an, an economy. I'm just thinking what I'm just throwing in there the idea what would happen if you take out of the equation an outdated concept of work if you have if you no longer correlate if you had a kind of basic income that that reduces massively uh, wealth discrepancies but society can reward people differently as women have been rewarded with a pittance and a smile and a kiss on the cheek or a smack on the other side I don't know uh, if you can you know value the fact that human beings do things not only for money and that you could probably run a community run many services run many of the professions we have going um, on a different uh, scale of on uh, on the basis of a different equation where the, where the question of work hours for instance and remun- remuneration is untethered from an old-fashioned concept of work 
And work, when I say work, I'm thinking of output of machines or horsepower. Yeah, I mean, I, c I completely agree. I think also, like, we can push this even more radically and to, to, to say, uh, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, the whole economy needs to shift towards care. You know, it's, it's, it's not just that there's a certain, you know, in the past, you know, we've, we've been living in this kind of world where kind of most people work, uh, paid work, remunerate, remunerated work, and, and some people are, are, are doing this, you know, well, not some people, but a large section of the society is doing unpaid work. It, sh it should be, the, the, you know, it should be that we, we all, you know, all people are directed towards care. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, and I think you know, really, to me, you know, going back to the black swan here, I mean, I think you know, so as Taleb describes it, you know, it's, it's to do with a bunch, of, it's to do with fallacies and biases, right? And that you know that are at play, and and the ones that are at play, you know, the most critical one here is is the expectation that the future will resemble the past, and you know. We used to live in a world where certain freedoms were taken for granted, and and that world is gone now. I mean, it's it's uh, you know we're living in this kind of shimmering after image of that world. It's uh, it's just uh, you know this is the time of reverberation and decay in 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 where that kind of projection of that future based on the history is is would would just kind of fall away like. Uh, like the hair of somebody suffering from radiation sickness. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we have to understand, look, okay, perhaps, perhaps we will recover from this viral, viral ep epidemic, right? But it's, it, this is just the first of a number of kind of massive shocks that we're going to have to deal with. And it's not just the virus, right? It's, uh, you know, it's it's the terminal trajectory of capitalism which has just been shown to you know like this is just the trigger of capitalism's you know internal decline right um secondly it's the you know it's the tendency of fascism and war to arise in, in these kind of conflicts and you know it's almost certain that we're going to see that as a result of this it's the fast approaching ecological catastrophes that are, that are right on our doorstep. You know, the massive extinctions, pollution and so on. These, these are things that globally are going to be kind of, you know, we're going to have a series of disasters. And, you know, there, there, there has to be radical solutions to this. Otherwise, you know, the, the authorities as they are, are based only in the, you know, ensuring the survival of capital and you know they're the executive committee of the bourgeoisie right they, they look at the way that they've dealt with climate change they've done nothing they all that they've done is prop up the existing industry they've done that in the same way they've they've failed completely in, in in treating the problems of the virus you know i i really have no faith in 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 in, in they're the, the providing a solution unless there's this kind of massive political kind of shift that demands one, right? That demands a, a, a complete change in perspective. What we're seeing is a massive political shift in the opposite direction because we should never forget that this Trump is just the epiphenomenon of, 
you know, all the people who, I mean, all the people who voted him, even if numerically more people voted someone else, that is, you know, you can't do away with the fact that also in India, people voted Modi, you know, this, this in, in Brazil, these people are, yeah. are the mask of a, of a massive wave. So this, it seems to be going the wrong direction at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very pessimistic about the future. I, I, you know. I think it has to do a lot is when the state comes into question because you know it's like um, yeah the problem is you know if you have certain solutions like Syriza uh, in in Greece which they betrayed the whole you know population of Greece uh, in 2015 you know them you know I mean, they import in Brazil was a very complex kind of situation, but you know, with the scandals, uh, with Lula and Dilma. But so basically, the question is like the left uh, is um, pushed into a big, big problem when it needs to re respond to go beyond the state because at the moment it has only been organized uh, in the general sense in regards to take social democratic uh, reforms that uh, basically I, they were not, I don't think they're historically being able to fill their promises. And even if they do, they get into questions that are very tricky. And here's where, you know, in the, in the issue around borders, you know, they have to uh, basically, you see fractions. For example, here the link in Germany, there was a huge discussion a couple of years ago whether they should be tougher on borders or not. So, it's, 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 I think for me the problem is the, the left response in regards to the state. Will they, is, you know, will you, they, will you try to go beyond it? That that's a very complex, uh, you know, we are dealing with very complex uh, proposals, then the idea of universalism comes into place. But if we, if we don't go beyond it, I think we come to a very problematic forms of solution that will only be temporary. Uh, at the moment, we see that uh, this pandemic can only be response at the nation, you need the national level in order to implement certain rules that are able to, you know, have the ability to stop people from going out, you know, to be able to access medicine. But I think that the, I, don't, I don't see the left having an answer that goes beyond the idea of the nation state that could have a broader form of repercussion. I mean, something that I see from the left reading social media in a very angry mood these days is that it's really disappointing to see uh, friends or peers that you consider progressive uh, or from the left trying to achieve an individual solution, an individual enlightenment, an individual approach to this pandemic. It's so frustrating. It's like, if we find a way out of this for the left, for your progressive ideals, it needs to be a collective emancipation, a collective yes. solution. It's, it's, 
He's humble. Right, but then at the same time, there are people trying to organize collectively. And I think, uh, you know, and I, I think um, to me, it's a matter of uh, self-organizing collectively w within, within nations and across nations, you know, globally. Uh, and to, via that, put pressure on states to change. You know, because I don't think I don't think the 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 normal ways of political you know we we can't expect to be able to vote vote this in via parliamentary politics. We have to. It, it can, to me, it can only be like a, a kind of activist solution to you know via pressure on you know that changes the global view. One one thing I find interesting about the COVID epidemic is the fact that it lights up uh, the lack of a global legal framework, global legal, economic, fiscal framework. Um, because clearly, if you if you get the epidemic to slow down in Europe and eventually to stop, and then you continue like you did before, and there is no healthcare structure in vast areas of, of developing economies then now you suddenly realize and this is going to be amplified by coming climate turbulences who will you know unleash other epidemics as you know there are a lot of epidemics in nigeria for instance that i read about recently um that are absolutely terrifying they just don't happen to spread the way that covid does if they did they would be much more devastating and now we realize that we can't look after ourselves only. If you put people in detention camps when they arrive as, as uh, refugees and asylum seekers, they are, you know, you can't isolate yourself from that. You can't build walls against that. You can't, unless you stay in lockdown forever, which is also a form of economic suicide. So if you want your economy, if you want it to be global, we are now in a situation where, where I think the most positive outcome would be to strengthen the international institutions that we already have and endow them with real kind of state of law type power where you, you know, you look after workers' rights, after, um, you know, an economic distribution that enables other countries to have healthcare facilities that, you know, are, allow people to be looked after. So I'd, I, th I think that could be potentially one positive outcome that we are forced to do both what is right and, and what is necessary in the face of, of other events that will surely happen in the near future with, with um, climate change. For me, okay, this, this is a very interesting proposal. Uh, and I think for me, we were talking about this, Cecile, the relationship of the law or the inability of the law in the, late, in the recent times to be able to cope with the rapid changes and the kind of uh, problems or uh, not problems, but uh, demands that of many different groups, you know, especially I think the internet has uh, basically shown the gaps of the legal system to cope with some recent uh, issues that have occurred. So for me, it's like what kind of form of uh, individual or how is addressing the individual or should it address, conceive the individual differently? So for me, the issue of liberalism uh, is uh, a very crucial moment that I don't know, you know, and in previous discussions we had like, 
we were like talking, okay, on the one hand, the state being powerful and having to respond to this type of situations. On the other hand, we see individuals, you know, anarcho-capitalists, people from the right, getting ready for this type, you know, ready, getting ready for the worst of the worst. Uh, and, <laughs> and getting into the survival mode. And I think, um, I don't know if a liberal form of solution will be able to be appropriate for the kind of future that we have ahead. What, what do you think it will happen to liberalism uh, within the process of this pandemic and its repercussions? Exactly. No, I think. Both of you. Both of you. I mean, what? What? How do you? How do you? How are you defining liberalism here? Because I think uh, there's there's a number of different ways of, of understanding it. Well, I mean, let let's say you know, like the individual having its rights, the right of property, and you know, the way in which you know Western democracies have basically allowed the freedom of the individual to vote, to work, and so on. So the foundations in which, you know, the Western mm -hmm. democracies, most of the Western democracies and other countries are based upon. I mean, for me, okay, uh, let me tackle it this way, because this is something that happened, that, that came up in, a, in a, the, the discussion that I, when I was talking at the news center, Reza asked me about this, and you know, you know, this idea about you know, okay, the, you know, the the people who are preparing are the ones who are like the the the, the libertarians, right? We're than liberal, like libertarians who are kind of getting their bunkers ready, you know, both on the on the on the on, on the side. The, so the poor ones and also the very rich ones, right, who have bought their places in New Zealand and so on. And, you know, to me, uh, you know, oh, and what's in between is all of those who kind of believe in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the world as the liberal world in some ways, right? You know, uh, and, and, and they're all, you know, we are, are all kind of in this kind of, you know, laboring under this belief that the that that world is safe that it's it can continue it, it's not it's not at all safe but that doesn't mean we should build bunkers right it means that we have to have a collective effort in order to you know if they are building bunkers we need to build anti-bunkers right you know if I was thinking about how, like, kind of, oh, you know, people who are looking at climate change, libertarians looking at climate change, are going, "Oh, where's the best place for me to uh, to <laughs> buy a property where I can live out the climate change?" We should be doing the opposite, going like, "Where's the worst place in the world to which is going to be worst hit by climate change? How how are we going to live there collectively?" Yeah, that's <laughs> that is actually a really good point. Yeah, but I find it's problematic for because again we are talking this this thing that Martin suggested how the left can engage with a narrative that is seductive for people etc cetera, etc cetera. and we see classical effectiveness of activism 
within the left. But then when we face these massive challenges that are characterized with positive feedback processes, and then we see how activism traditionally operates within homeostatic processes, like negative feedback processes, you see that you are always handicapped, if you know what I mean. It's always easier for uh, things like, let's say, echo chambers of Breitbart or fake news or, I don't know, yeah, a virus, this pandemic, to be effective, to be mainstream, rather than these homeostatic kind of activist fights to do the right thing, to do the progressive thing. So I don't know if there is... To me, I don't see it necessarily as homeostatic, right? You know, it's, okay. it's, not, it's, not about, it's not about maintaining the existing order, right? But about completely transforming it towards the future. And that's something like directed right it's directed towards change and transformation yeah not okay to, not about not about preserving some status quo okay yeah you are right but for example but i see your point i see your point and certainly yeah no 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 but it's a fault of uh, the way in which i express this because you are right homeostatic is, is not the right word for this but certainly are like negative feedback processes in the way in which they interact with uh let's say, more powerful, positive feedback process that it's ongoing. Right, but that's because we haven't collectively organized in a way that responds to that challenge. You know, yeah. like, you know, so let's take fake, fake news for, as yes. an example, right? Like you, like you said, this, this easily spreads around the world like a virus, um, you know, because there isn't any kind of proper collective organization about how to defend ourselves against that you know we just suffer it as individuals in our in our individual feeds in our individual facebook feeds and so yeah, yeah yeah i agree 100 percent. yeah but we could organize uh, against this you know and that would that would be massively resilient to those kind of so it what could you, be i don't know if you read these um uh, uh, anti-fragile measures proposed by Taleb, if you have any insight in that regard. I haven't read that book actually yet. Well, I, I, I know the, I know the, the concept uh, 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 a bit, and I think, uh, you know, I think he's right. I mean, what's, what's clear is kind of the, that, uh, you know, what we, what we took to be kind of resilient is actually fragile. Uh, you know, and uh, and you know, we certainly need to to develop some kind of uh, anti fragility in some way. But I think you know, perhaps uh, you know, anti fragility is, as I say, I haven't read it, so I don't want to kind of criticize the concept without having read it. But to me, I I think you know, if we take this idea. You know, it's not homeostatic kind of maintenance of 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 what the, what they you know. So it's not something anti-fragile in the sense of maintaining uh, an identity, but it's about kind of producing a forward momentum yeah. that would be that would be kind of you know resilient to the to the 
perturbations coming from outside. Yeah, and actually, if I understood this correctly, because I didn't read her, didn't read the book either, but I read some excerpts, and it's like, for example, if you exercise and you are able to do ten push-ups, actually your body is able to do twelve. Let's say so. It's this. Uh, room for improvement to enter another domain of improvement and to amplify your capacity into another domain. That's what anti-fragility is. Mm -hmm. I think I interrupt you, Cecile. You were raising your hand before or not? No, I, I think I kind of lost you guys because it sounds very abstract to me. Uh, who gets, uh, who is homeostatic or who is uh, uh, kind of beyond homeostatic and maybe if you like in a metastable equilibrium or, or who gets organized uh, with and against whom. Um, yeah. I think that to a certain extent the activists are not exempt from the risk of a catastrophic reaction and paranoia and um, and those kinds of implosions of a kind of innovative dynamic. I think we all, we all are on, on every front and the, on the contrary, the greater risks you take cognitively to think something beyond what is uh, safe, beyond what you know already, the more you are exposed to, to the risk of a kind of flight into meaning or um, people with guitars <laughs> making music, being completely pissed and staggering around. That's actually, I should film them. They're really good. So I don't know, that this ended up being a little bit abstract for me, uh, this conversation about the homeostasis. Humanity at large being homeostatic or, or activists, then which ones? Because, you know, on the right, they consider themselves activists too. Um, in fact, they've been very organized, sending all their militias to areas to intercept refugees and stuff. So, just... I, I, I was thinking from the perspective of uh, this, how uh, deceptive the left can be considered in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. You can see how we are unable to produce a future that it's uh, seductive for new forms of politics. And actually we are, well, this is not new. I mean, Cernick and Alex Williams wrote about this. There are certain for, forms of folk politics that seem to go, I don't know the name in English, but like a step uh, before the actual uh, present in terms of producing politics. So you can see that the defeat of progressive policies or progressive forms of the left in cases like Brexit referendum, Bolsonaro, UK, uh, is like a symptom of the left unable to provide uh, new horizons, basically. So I, I, I see this, this kind of process as actually homeostatic in terms of trying to restore this kind of orthodox almost mainstream discourse of the progressive left but as i said i think i it, it is not the right word to characterize activism as such because activism has the potential in terms of this thing that uh, taleb 
understands as anti-fragility, it has the potential of creating this common ground for the future, etc. But sorry, because yes, we went deep into the... Uh, because for, I guess for me, uh, looking at this, it looks much more fragmented. You have the, the left is as diverse as the right almost. You have, well, maybe that's stretching it a little bit too much, but, uh, you know, you have people like Blair who are basically still on the left. Then you have, I mean, it stretches so, so wide and there, there are factions that are incompossible realities in political terms almost. So I don't know on what what would be the organizing principle that would kind of unify the whole left? Would that be homeostatic in the sense of... I probably completely misunderstood how, how you meant this. You meant homeostatic in the sense of coming, falling back onto orthodoxies and failing to to develop new ideas or...? I mean, fragmentation for the left seems to be always a failure, or at least in in the present tense. Now, if we think about the left as fragmented, it's not something that the left considers positive. Uh, so they try to achieve, and that's the reason why I use the term homeostatic, this kind of balance in which we understand in, in classical terms of the international, etc., this home, uh, homogeneous movement of the workers of the world, unions, etc., while nowadays fragmentation, positive feedback in social media, online forums, etc., is a huge triumph for the right. I mean, they use these tools in a very effective way. Yeah. That was my, my main point. That I, I, I feel certain skepticism, for example, regarding activism when they try to restore traditional forms of activism that pursue like this homogeneous organization, classical forms of understanding, universalism, etc. in a world that it's more and more highly fragmented and decentralized. Is any clear, Cecil, or, yeah, or yeah. you are still? No, no, no. It, it is. I guess I'm. Um... There is no such a thing as an organism that it's the left. Maybe there was something like that in a in in the in the first half of the 19th century, and they had enough. I guess what I'm what I'm feeling at the moment is that because there is such a huge propensity of people for in uncertain times to lean towards the right um, to make to have a kind of repli uh, d'identité to be kind of uh, to fall down onto an identity that there would be a community or race or nation or something like that um, whatever world we are going towards is always going to be a world that is with those people in it and potentially you know half of them or the majority of them or 
and you know just judging from the conversation I had about these conspiracy theories I think the chances of effecting change in the way that you would persuade these vast groups of people who lean towards the right and to conspiracy theories and something like that um, to suddenly lean left or do you know the kind of victory of the left I, I there is something like that implicit in, in the idea that we must win with what would be a better world model which probably I'm saying something completely anathema but I'm the world that I imagine will be there in 50 years or 100 years time will be one of hopefully capable of attenuating the excesses of the right but it won't wipe away people's tendency to to react like this to uncertainty the reaction what, I, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that um, I guess I'm I'm trying to think I'm, I'm not trying to think how would be how would the world be if uh, you know if the ideas of the left prevail I'm trying to think about a world in which the ideas of the left are um, operable and uh, and capable of attenuating the excesses of uh, groups of people entire populations sometimes who have this catastrophic reaction towards you know identity violence um, a reduction of also freedoms of people so I'm not imagining that there will ever be a world without the right I'm I don't know if I don't know if it will be you know we'll think of it like the right or the left but I think that even within the left you have these you have the catastrophic reaction I'm just thinking what are the conditions under which you can create a world in which you attenuate the catastrophic reaction of vast swathes of populations so that you avoid kind of religious hatred or um, you know gender wars or, or various other forms of um, hard boundaries drawn in terms of identities and communities. I'm not really good, you know, I, I really shouldn't talk about politics because I, I don't think I'm... No, no, it's, um, I mean, no, it's really helpful and I think all of us we saw this this movement these days how people react to uncertainty leaning towards the right and stuff like that uh, but I think it's interesting because by by definition because obviously the right can be said in many ways and can be said in terms of liberalism in terms of conservatism in terms of being uh, reactionary contestatory but if by definition we take let's say conservatism uh, cons conservative moves in times of a huge catastrophe are normal but as well we can take uh, responses from 100 years ago that nowadays it's highly unlikely that we will see because different processes of enlightenment occur and hopefully we won't see that kind of reactions in terms of uncertainty. I think uh, there are certain uh, I don't know, conquests that are difficult to remove in terms of the use of reason, etc. And you are more optimistic than me. No, I mean 
it's what, I, 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 can you please put an example what what do you think these ones are i mean obviously oh, oh, we can see a phase shift in society and then it seems that we will start from scratch but there are progress uh, different forms of progress that i mean i was watching a tv series uh, that it's documenting a moment in time no so far ago like 45 years in Spain during the last stages of the dictatorship and they are portraying ways of life that for me nowadays are inconceivable right for example well yeah this is a very niche case <laughs> it's, like, it's called El Palmar de Troya about some side wings that occur near Sevilla and they created a kind of para-Catholic church after the uh, uh, Second Concilio of Vatican Concilio. I don't know the name in English. So yeah, highly superstitious, uh, obscurantism, self-flagellation, uh, I don't know, really bleak uh, ways of living, extremely bleak uh, to the extent that extreme forms of Islamism seem very naive and progressive in comparison with this that occurred 45 years <laughs> ago in Spain, you know, it's like, uh, com like there are images that come from, I don't know, Lars von Trier, Antichrist. It's, it's really crazy. But I think that whole, uh, you know, we've been we we've been a, we're so accustomed to that kind of idea of this kind of incremental progress, right? Yes. That that uh, that, that uh, we take it for granted that that's just the case. That that you know that uh, that that you know. But really, I think this catastrophe shows that it's massively precarious that, that it's that it's not the case that progress you know necessarily happens and and it's certainly not you know what what capital gen you know is necessarily going to produce uh you know and let's i mean i think uh maybe if we like uh, it would be useful here to think uh, to, to switch scales right to think about you know, not on the political scale of near history but let's talk about the evolutionary biological scale right you know uh, so um, evolutionary processes are, are, are driven by variability that so they they don't favor the development of complexity and intelligence complexity and intelligence are just contingent outputs of that of, of that process right you know so uh so like dolphins apes humans you know we're, we're just contingent results of this kind of extreme fitness on the side of like bacteria right and, and viruses i mean viruses aren't counted as living organisms but you know viruses as well right which have this extreme variability diversity and fitness effectively right you know, um, what, you know, as complex multicellular kind of intelligent kind of species, you know, we're highly, highly precarious, 
know, because we, 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 you know, we, we, we depend on all of the stuff that we that we exploit and that we consume, and and you know, at this kind of, and then if we kind of now shift perspective up to this kind of historical moment, here we are, you know, having where capital has kind of exploited the world and those natural resources to the point where that precarity shows where where it's like oh shit yeah we've just chopped off the branch that we're sitting on no wonder we're falling yeah yeah i agree i mean uh 100 and i think this is not new i mean it's not uh, for much uh, hate that i must have uh, and uh, the the criticism that we can pose on capitalism the idea of cataclysms that purge the earth, destroy the idea of progress of or or civilization. You can find this in Plato Timaeus, and you can find this in the idea of yeah Egypt and then Roman Empire or Greek. I mean, obviously, but if we think in the scale that we are managing now our generations. I can think that yeah we can yeah, no I have certain um, faith maybe in the conquest of certain rational enterprises. It's like and I use and I use the idea of faith consciously, but consciously, yeah. One thing that makes me. Um optimistic about the current crisis is um, is the fact that it uh, it makes the immediate the immediate next challenge is to uh, create global organizations with that are capable of collective organization at a global level so that relativizing the importance and the power of individual states I think this is a very positive thing because if we, if you look, for example, at um, open source and all these journals putting their, their articles open source at the moment and stuff becoming available, courses becoming available, if that could be treated as a common good, I, th I think uh, you could produce a real platform for rationality. Uh, but right. it, has, it has to be global. There's no, there's no other way. I think this is what has really held us back most the inequality the kind of partial opening up we're not really globalized because people are still not free to go where they need to go if everyone was free to go where where they want to go we would you know self-organize on a global level very quickly in such a way that um people would be able to also stay where they want to stay and not right. have the war and economic hardship and so forth and i totally agree that sanitary yeah. conditions it's exactly yes i agree it's the this this is an important aspect of this uh, this crisis it's a properly global crisis and therefore demands that we move beyond thinking about uh, na nation na nation level responses but at the same time you know okay um i mean if we look at examples of existing global kind of uh you know uh organizations like World Health Organization, the UN, and so on. I mean, it's not very inspiring. 
so, like, it has to be. If you think of it, for instance, the International, um, uh, sorry, slipped my mind now, the International Court of Justice. I mean, it's not inspiring because it is nominal at the moment. It has no power to do anything. It can assess things, but it's already there implicitly. Not only implicitly, I mean, people meet, people talk, people, I mean, the, if the structure wasn't there, if it hadn't grown for the last decades out of a world war, I think we would be in a much worse situation to face because once the blueprint is there, all you need is to invest it with actual meaning and, and kind of normative balance. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, that, that, that can be the only hope in some way, is some, some form of global response, for sure. Um, because uh, There's no anti-missile shield into, against pandemics. <laughs> sorry? There's no anti-missile shield against pandemics. If you, if you look at climate change from a perspective of, uh, you know, shielding Europe from immigration or from poverty or, or, or whatever, you can't, you can't do that if you have entire swathes of populations that can't protect themselves from epidemies, then you you can't either. So I, I think this is actually a, this is probably the level of threat that is needed for humanity to understand that Earth is actually quite small, that the this tiny right. little skin of the atmosphere around it is not an infinite sky, but is actually a very limited space for us to breathe in and go up it. Yes, but then, you know, also, you know, that has to be you know, obviously, there's the counter tendency is the bunker mentality, right? And you know, we, well, in we, what bunker can you survive an epidemic? Oh, uh, well, uh, a month, two months, and then the next epidemic comes. I mean, it's just not. You would I, have to literally I, move to another planet and make sure nobody has the COVID virus who's coming with you. Yeah, I mean, well, it depends on the, the transmission what? and so on. But uh, yes, good. Uh, no, no, no. I was going to say that the the bunker mentality is really relevant nowadays, and even though it might uh, sound uh, silly, as you said, is is something that the extremely powerful people they have in mind. And as I think Inigo said in in the news center um, meeting that they are having. Uh, libertarians to some extent nowadays or at least these months they are winning the battle and as well uh, I mean people like Eric Weinstein that I think manages the trust of Peter Thiel this is a guy that is thinking well okay we have to move from planet earth we have to develop a new science because actually this is exhausted and we have to move from there yeah and it's Maybe it would be a good riddance if they bugger off to a different planet <laughs> and get on with organizing yeah. ourselves. Yeah, but uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's a rational that it's followed by very extremely powerful people, very creative, uh, that they think they think outside the box. Yeah, but then if you like, it's a kind of foundational Adam and Eve myth because you would. Well, I mean, if you are on your own or you are not thinking about generations to come, I mean, by the time you have children, who are they going to reproduce with? You know, who 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 will be what what will be the the seeds of a new humanity? Unless but, but you, you don't have to, life, which is absolutely irrelevant to the rest of or to the 
history of, of the geological history of Earth. You save one life, then you're, de you're dead 40 years later, six years later, depending on how old you are now and what kind of technologies you have to prolong your life into your 120s or something like this. But what, where, what is the rationale for the founding of a new humanity under different conditions on a different planet or in a kind of bunker that you think nobody will ever be able to storm? far from the transmission of viruses that could, I mean, if you look at the, if, if the virus, for example, is airborne, and you think that we can sometimes have, um, on this side, on the northern side of the Mediterranean, you get sand that comes from the Sahara. Mm. You can have airborne viruses that go absolutely everywhere. There, there are some, this is what I find interesting about this crisis, is that the idea that you can compartmentalize the world is absolutely futile. You really can't. You can shield yourself perhaps from poverty, perhaps, but you can't shield yourself from the conditions, from the consequences of poverty, which is that, you know, people get ill and you get ill too, sooner or later. On a massive scale, like, like we're seeing now. I mean, I'm not even, yeah. This is why we need a collective counter bunker. Yeah. Which is called Earth. I want Earth to be Yes, out. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, this maybe we should just expel those people, you know, say it's time to go. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. Next chartered flight <laughs> is planned for. Yeah, but I guess my question very simply is according to which collective values will the uh, come together, you know, what What are the things, you know, like, what would be the basis of that form of collectiveness? It's, yeah, I mean, well, we've already talked about how, you know, there's, there's obviously plenty of, uh, you know, fragmentedness amongst the left, right? And so, it, you know, and there's plenty of there will be plenty of disagreement about how we should organize um, but then I think you know there ought to be some very basic principles that we could agree on right which would be you know ensuring our collective health and ability to survive um, you know so and to me that means you know not just ensuring human health, but ecological health. Um, exactly. So it just means, like I said earlier on, we should all be devoted to, to care. You know, care of each other and care of the planet. That's it. No more, not, not, the idea of productivity, of being devoted to productivity, should just be, that's it, it's extinct. We need, otherwise we're extinct.